0: Hello and welcome to Chaffa Cakes for Proust. I am Mooncat, you are Ocho. I am. This is a show in which we don't talk about sitcoms. So we thought
1: for our first show properly, we take a look at something with reasonably broad appeal for a certain generation, certain generations actually, and with a very heavy nostalgic bent, the Children's Film Foundation. Now that means different things, I think, to different generations. It has its roots in matinee culture. And it's not something Mooncat and I are particularly familiar with. I've only ever been to one Saturday matinee, and that was a showing of the Adam West Batman movie. And all it was was he went in and the movie started and then the movie ended and we all went home. There was none of this associated singing along, games and lectures and safety films apparently, and shorts that I've heard reports of in the classic Saturday matinee of old. But needless to say, given the culture in Britain in the good old days, there was concern about whether these matinees were really the right thing for children. You didn't just let businesses do whatever the heck they want. I think there was worry that they were showing things that were too violent, and violence then may mean something different from violent. Now, I'm imagining they possibly may have just the good old-fashioned black-and-white movie serials of the type might have been seen as a bit too violent, and I think there was probably concern about them all being American. So it was felt that there was a need for wholesome British entertainment for the children. The rank organisation had taken the lead, but they just couldn't make it work by themselves. So this leads to the foundation of the Children's Film Foundation. It's a subsidised organisation. I think most, if not all, of the British film studios had some financial contribution to it. And the way it worked was an agreement would be reached with a producer to go off and make a film, and when the film was finished, the Children's Film Foundation would buy it, and it would then be distributed to all the entertainment-hungry children of the Saturday matinee scene. And you'll notice that I'm using strange little distancing words like apparently and supposedly, because to Mooncat and me, Children's Film Foundation was something that was served up on a Friday afternoon because Children's BBC was
0: feeling a bit lazy Was it a summer holiday thing? Yes, it was. It was always a summer holiday thing, as far as I recall. You remember how, in the summer time, Children's BBC, which normally began at 3.50, would begin at 10 past 4, for example. At least for one fortnight of the year after some Wimbledon coverage. And on Fridays in particular, you might have got, say, a couple of programmes. You might have got, say, Ulysses 31. And then 4.35, well, hey, it's a Children's Film Foundation film for an hour. And (laughs) that's my recollection. Sorry,
1: my... My left came across as a bit mocking, didn't it? (laughs) Now, we do have this rule that we don't sneer. We're very respectful of all the hard work these people did. But I didn't like the Children's Film Foundation films on the Friday afternoon. I saw it as a kind
0: of punishment. I didn't see it as a punishment as such. It was more sort of cop-out. It was like, in the same way as you would get BBC Two repeating shows like Paul Daniels and the two Ronnies and so on in the summertime from the previous autumn. And ITV would do the same with about a sort of 18-month gap. Nothing wrong with that. It's nice to see the programs again, but this was a similar sort of situation where it's look, you know, it's the summertime. You're not really meant to be indoors watching television. And also, I think if I'm going to go all... That's what we were being punished for. I don't mean to go all sort of 45%, but there is also a sense of some program controller in Shepherd's Bush saying, well you know, the temperatures last year, I mean it was so warm, people aren't going to be indoors watching television in the summer Yeah, some of us, like us in up here when it's pissing down in rain during the summer time for large parts, might actually want to see the telly, thank you very much yeah, so there was a sort of element of that, it was as if, yeah we have to be on the air, so here's this, but it wasn't as if you were getting second rate stuff because it's not second rate, they're very good little films, I think what I would most associate those airings with is that they were dated. So you're looking at films from, say, about 1970 or so. And, of course, things from that particular era, as we've talked about in the sitcom club, tend to date perhaps more so than things either earlier or later just because of the sudden explosion of colour and the fashion sense and so on. Yeah,
1: 1975 to 1985 eyes, I think, looks... Way, way more dusty and weird and forgotten and lost and dead than 2005 would to 2015 eyes. Doesn't sound like the kind of child I was to think, oh, these kids are wearing
0: flares. Ugh. But it's not a sneering thing. It's not like you're looking at it like that and making fun of it. It's just different. It's different from what I've always thought. You know what? If it'd slot. been a
1: show from 1975, I probably wouldn't have been that bothered. In fact, I might have been quite pleased. Hey, I. Didn't mind watching Tim Tyler, the boy who lost his laugh. I think there was a sense that you haven't made these films BBC and you haven't bought these in at great expense. They're budget. They're B-movie-ish. Some of them are cheap in a way they can't hide and they don't seem to get energy from that cheapness. Some of them, as I've gone back and looked at them, are fantastic for their cheapness. There's a nice brightness to them. There's a nice, well, come on, let's just get the film made. Let's all have fun. I never seem to see any of those. I always seem to see the formulaic, uninspired, drab-looking ones.
0: Well, we looked at three films specifically for this, and I think we've chosen quite nicely. We've got a nice little mix in terms of the years involved and the types of films that they are. I mean, they're all lighthearted, I suppose you would say, but one of them is a drama, and one of them is, I suppose you would say, an out-and-out comedy and then of course you've got one that's sort of in the middle which is dramatic but with hijinks so let's start with the full on nuts type (laughs) humour of, well not quite but let's start with Egghead's robot
1: with the young Keith Chegwin and the young Jeffrey Chegwin his twin brother I hate to pick up on minor production problems I would like to know If What I Think Happened, Happened. And they have this film which requires Egghead to be in two places at once. But it's okay because, as the title indicates, there's Egghead's robot, and Egghead's robot is supposed to look exactly like Egghead. And of course, what is the most elegant solution if you can't afford expensive split-screen techniques? Cast identical twins. And I would like to know at what point did Jeffrey get taller than Keith? Is it a case of they entered pre-production and by the time shooting started Geoffrey had a growth spurt? So Jeffrey's about an inch, maybe even two inches taller than Keith and the resemblance is kind of not there anymore. I'm also curious, Jeffrey, of course speaks in a monotone and has these appropriate dead eyes because he's a robot. Now is that just his performance decision or the direction he's been given or was he just less comfortable in front of the camera? because Keith is going for it. Keith is making the most of his every single line and Jeffrey, there's no spark there. Has he suppressed the spark within him or is he just doing it to be nice? He is a robot. We've got to bear that in
0: mind. So he's not going to have a great deal of personality. I mean, Metal Mickey, for example. Well, there you go, you see. He could have been a cheeky robot. Well, he's cheeky, but Metal Mickey still speaks in a monotonous voice even when he's being cheeky yeah i'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and i'm gonna say yeah it's a deliberate artistic decision
1: now i'm in trouble now because i can't remember which take of this podcast it was that you mentioned this so it may well be that you mentioned this in the version we just abandoned because it wasn't flowing properly you said something about these films having a moral message. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, that wasn't the one that we abandoned. So Okay,
1: and I said that I don't think they do. And here's your perfect example. <laughs> these kids are really badly behaved. For a start, B movie pacing. The end credits end immediate exposition. I like that. Elspeth, egghead sister, is out on her bicycle and she's taken Eric the robot, about whom we will learn more, also on the bicycle and they're going to run an errand and it's really a road test and she just starts talking about how the remote control's working and the robot goes off to buy some crunch bars and one of Egghead's friends sees Elspeth comes up and says, oh, don't forget to tell Egghead about cricket practice tomorrow. And Elspeth's reaction is, tell him yourself! That's not an out-of-character moment. This is why punk happened. <laughs> I'm saying everybody, everybody who was on that infamous edition of Today with Bill Grundy had seen Elspeth and thought, that's the way I'm going to live my life.
0: (laughs) We have the first appearance of two of the adults, as they referred to in the credits, and it's Patricia Routledge and Richard Waters, and we never see the indoors of the house.
1: It's expensive to light those places. It does mean that when the phone rings... Mr. Went with Egghead's father, goes in, picks up the phone, and then carries the phone outside and stands on the doorstep to have his conversation. But it was a nice day. I think 1970 looks to be permanently sunny and happy.
0: Is it too early for me to make a socio-political point? I'm not going to tar all the CFF films with the same brush because in actual fact, two out of the three don't fall into this category of the ones that we saw. But my sort of memories of the CFF films in general was that they depicted a sort of idyllic, I suppose you would say middle class appearance. I thought you were middle
1: class. Didn't you say you were middle class on the sitcom club? Well,
0: I'd say that there's certain elements of my upbringing which are very middle class in terms of emphasis of the importance of education and things like that, but in terms of, say, income or like, the area that I might have happened to be living in at a particular time, they were more sort of working class areas and so on. To me, these films were a presentation of a slightly different universe. It's the cricket, isn't it? Cricket to a Scotsman is a red rag to a bull. No, I've got to disagree okay. you that. No, I people do play cricket in Scotland. Now, admittedly, it's not as big as it is in England, but it does happen. And Scotland did compete in the Cricket World Cup just recently, so I haven't got a problem with cricket specifically. But well, it's I more I'm from Yorkshire; it's not
1: a very big cricket <laughs> market. <there. laughs>
0: it's more about Richard Waters spending the afternoon pruning the garden, for example, things like that. I haven't got a problem with that, but you've got a local park, you which has got a parkie, so it's not.
1: Have you ever seen a parkie? I have never seen a parkie in my entire life. It's one thing, though, that I found weirdly easy to accept as a child. I mean, even things like the Bash Street kids. And a lot of the stuff that was served up as entertainment was rooted in the past, but didn't seem to bother me. I just accepted it. I don't know if that's some sort of poverty of aspiration on my part. Yes, obviously, I will have to take the hand-me-downs of previous generation for my entertainment.
0: Or if I was just a very nice little boy who accepted the past on its own terms. We know that there must have been such a thing as park keepers because otherwise we wouldn't have had Valentine Park with Ken Jones.
1: Oh, there were such a thing as park keepers but when do you think the park went Oh, you kids! <laughs> were they ever an incredibly common sight and if so, when did they cease to be a common sight? Because I'd definitely been to the park lived quite close to a park but it, it didn't have a parkie, and yet it had a little pond that people put their uh, boats
0: on. There were definitely things there that needed looking after. Maybe this is just the areas that I happen to have lived in over the years, but generally speaking, the park is somewhere where you never see any staff in attendance, you never see a park keeper. And generally speaking, you're sort of told, yeah, don't go in the park, you know, because there's like, you know, there's Neds hanging around there. Neds being. I suppose what you would call nowadays chavs or whatever local expression you want to use. But it was just like, yeah, park, yeah, don't go in there. Rough boys hanging around in the park.
1: So so you're saying that the Children's Film Foundation was aimed squarely at Tristram Four Mile. And the other Smooth Boys. Certainly this film... Now you see the Smooth boy sounds a bit threatening to me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a gang that Tristram then went on to found. <laughs> and when the Neds started causing trouble... In the local park at Hampton Wick. Because of his high-minded intellectualism, there was just, there was just some really horrific punishments. Very perverse ideas. <laughs> that cold, analytical brain. Sorry. Parkies. So, we're satisfied that Parkies existed. Yes. I've yeah, never I'll, seen I'll one. You've never seen one. If anybody has any encounters with Parkies, particularly shaking their fist and having a, a peaked cap that says Park Keeper on it, we'd love to hear from you.
0: <laughs> no. The thing is that we are talking about park keepers as if that is some sort of ideal, stress-free job. Actually, I
1: did once nearly walk smack bang into Parky. Oh, really? Yes. Well, it's okay, I didn't hit him, so I I managed to swerve and avoid him. Where was this? It was in the National Media Museum. He's very tall. Or maybe I'm very short, I don't know.
0: You'd think, wouldn't you? Especially if you've seen Valentine Park that the life of a park keeper is, by and large, stress-free, and you tend to the bits and pieces that need to be attended to. And, yeah, you're out in the sunshine and everything's all rosy and dandy and wonderful. And yet, poor old Roy Kinnear. If all they'd done to Roy Kinnear was just said, tell him yourself, then he would have had a very easy day. But no, that wasn't on the cards here.
1: I'm going to bring up TV tropes. I know it's a lazy thing to do, but I'm going to bring up TV tropes, because they do have... The phrase is designated hero and designated villain, and the parkie is definitely a designated villain. I don't see that he does anything particularly wrong. Egghead's robot rides his bike. Because he is a robot and doesn't have normal coordination and normal sense, he rides his bike into the parky, and the parky pitches forward, and his head goes through a fence. And Elspeth shows no sympathy. Does she say anything, or does she just cycle past?
0: Or... I think she cycles past it faster than that. Does she call him a wine gum? What? <laughs> she cycles past it first and then glares at Parkies. If it really all is she needed all to do fault. was get
1: off her bike, you know, flick the remote control so that the robot stops surreptitiously, so you're not revealing that you have an incredibly sophisticated artificial life form in 1970. That's fine. You want to be quiet about that, but just get off your bike and help the park keeper up and say, "I'm sorry. He's not normally like this." He's not well at the moment. Okay, you're fine. We're very sorry about this. And then maybe go home and say, sorry, mum, the the parky fell over. Can we make some buns for him and take them and show that we're sorry? Just keep good community relations. That would be a moral message. That moral message is, no, it's like, that guy's trying to stop you doing what you want and destroying property the way you like. Kill him!
0: No, I think you're being too polite. What happens is that Roy Kinnear is painting the fence and suddenly he's got a bicycle rammed up his arse. As you say, neither robot nor robot sister offers any apology whatsoever. He gets his head stuck between the railings and he actually says to them at one point, here, help me out of here. And they don't. They just piss off. Yes, this, this could all have been avoided. Maybe it is
1: a class thing. Oh, you dreadful little oik. If you wanted sympathy, you shouldn't have become a park
0: keeper. You should have worked hard at school. (laughs) Yes, take your rear out of the way of my bicycle, dreadful commoner. For some reason, that sets up Roycaneer as the antagonist, then. Because of his gross dereliction of duty. (laughs) Being injured, how dare he? Yes, so he is then chasing him around the place for the rest of the time. And meanwhile, we've got... He is very lifelike, isn't he, as robots go? For 1970, as you say. Well, here's the thing. We we find that Egghead hasn't built the robot
1: himself. Egghead has repurposed the robot that was built by his father. His father's a genius. Look at that thing. That lifelike robot in 1970. Really, Richard Wattis. Mr. Robert Wentworth, why is it not Professor? (laughs) Yeah, he should have become a Bond villain. So 1970, so the next Bond film was Diamonds Are Forever. Would you not have loved to have seen Sean Connery going up against Richard Wattis and an army of Jeffrey (laughs) Chegwins? I'm there. Not to take anything away from Charles Grey as Blofeld. Well-respected actor, great distinctive voice, slight resemblance to Ronnie Barker, magnificent. But another example of how unfairly this park keeper is treated. There's a bit later on where the girl is pushing her bike through the park, and the park keeper does not like people riding their bikes through the park because, let's face it, look what happened to him last time. And he says, "No bike riding." Which, yes, okay, it's she's not riding her bike, but he needs to point out that I, you know, no point should you be climbing onto that thing. I know you're not doing the wrong thing yet. I am aware. And she goes, "I'm not riding my bicycle." Then she clambers on. And goes, I call this riding my bicycle. <laughs> which one in the Today program with the Bill Grunt, Which one is Elspeth Wentworth? <laughs> which side of Susie was she standing on? Anyway, I was wanting to meet you. So, Mr. Wentworth built a robot paratrooper and he made it look like his son. I have a theory about this because he does say at one point that, oh, you are a duffer at sports. That's going to hurt. Now, the thing is, is that the robot looks like a taller version of Egghead. Mr Wentworth went off to a shed to make the sun he really wanted.
0: And did he want to be good at sport? When he's saying you're duffer at sport, he's arguing with himself in a way. He realises that he forgot to include the sport chip, and he will forever r- rue that.
1: Most of this film is built around the robot playing cricket very well. That seems to have been Egghead's idea as well. So maybe, I don't know, maybe he's trying to win his father's approval. Or alternatively, it's a comedy for kids. (laughs) Or
0: dangerously. It's that strange
1: thing though, isn't it, that I watched something else with this. No, it actually comes up later. We'll talk about it in the next film. With this message that it's okay to cheat if you're the central character. If you are the protagonist, it is perfectly alright for you to defeat all these other boys and girls through unfair means because you're you. <laughs> Again, it's an antisocial message all the way through. It goes round in circles then really, doesn't it? Story wise. Sending the robot out to play cricket, and then for some reason Egghead has to keep switching places with the robot. And then switching back. We have Keith Chegwin running around in his underpants, which was excellent training for that Channel Five game show
0: i don't think he likes talking about that but we haven't asked him about it we've not asked him <laughs> <the> show, so.
1: <laughs> what's his number hang
0: on a minute it's about what quarter to midnight in the uk at the time we're recording this so his number as we all know is 8055, surely so
1: the rest of Egghead's cricket team are a bit uh, i say a bit strange i mean you've got mike from the young ones in his childhood he's there with his sunglasses and his cool attitude Mind you, he's, he's the one with the most stilted bit. A six. As I live and breathe, eggheads hit a six. Maybe children spoke like that in 1970. I have my doubts.
0: Did anybody speak like that, ever?
1: I'm pretty sure William Mervyn spoke like that
0: around about 1945. And of course there is the... I don't know how you would describe this. I wouldn't necessarily say callous, but it's more sort of unusual. There is a point at which they think egghead is dead. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yes, I knew there was something in this. that I thought I'd kind of run out of things to say there, but you've just reminded me of the most bizarre part. And this is why I have a note here saying that this takes place in a callous parallel universe where
0: normal human reactions are suspended. They're like, oh, egghead, he's... I'm going to pulse here. Yeah, he's, he's dead. Somebody ring for an ambulance. Ambulance comes along. Uh, it looks like stock footage that they've taken straight from Carry On Doctor. And then there's dead Egghead in the ambulance.
1: Have we set this up enough? What What happens is Egghead's mum goes into the shed where the control unit for the robot is kept. The robot is playing cricket because Egghead is rubbish at cricket and yet does not want to be seen to be rubbish at cricket. So he sends a robot to do his job for him. Egghead's mum notices that a piece of machinery is switched on in the shed and switches it off, so... As he's about to bowl, Egghead's robot just rolls his eyes and collapses. And for all that we're making fun of, all these child actors, quite a few of them do play that reasonably straight. They look horrified because their friend
0: has dropped dead in front of them. They're horrified, but they don't abandon the game. I mean, bloody hell. Oh, come (laughs) on. It's (laughs) It's not that bad. It's not them that bother me. It's the ambulance men. (laughs) So we've got dead Egghead in the ambulance, and suddenly when the power is switched back on, he sits up, and the ambulance men are actually very, very annoyed and put out by this. <laughs> like, what's your game? <laughs> what do you think we are? A couple of trained medics? <laughs> Get back down there. And, yeah, what does it end up with? The ambulance itself is a write-off, that it crashes into the hospital? Is that right? Yes,
1: uh, a man with a broken leg, I think, gets his good leg injured by a flying cricket ball. Oh, that's it, because kid's robot mistakes his two legs and crutch for a wicket. A cricket ball plops into a container being carried by a nurse. I think the container might be full of plaster of Paris. And the nurse very naturally screams and flings it up in the air. <laughs> I'm being so unfair to this poor film, but there's a couple of bits that... I think could have been fixed. I It's it's slapstick. It's nonsense. It's meant to make children laugh on a Saturday morning. Right, one thing. The tactics of the rival cricket team when Egghead's going up to bat and one of the kids says, come on, let's get him out. That's not a plan.
0: That's your aim. That is the basic thing. That's the rules of the game, basically. (laughs) That's not strategy. But also, when Egghead himself, not the robot, but Egghead, is spotted by Mike, and Mike's like, hey, you're an egghead, aren't you? Last time I saw you, about half an hour ago, you were dead. But you're not dead, He doesn't dead, say are you? dead. He doesn't say dead. Well, he didn't say that, but he says, oh, you're looking better, because last time you basically weren't alive. So come on then, get back in the pitch. It's not like, my God, I've just seen a ghost or anything like that. It's just like, oh, well, you can play after all then.
1: Hey, they could have got a bit of fun out of that, actually, with Mike looking at the... To his eyes resurrected Egghead and he could have run around in a sped up film fashion. (laughs) But then he couldn't have got to deliver his big line. That is the best line of the film. I guess somewhere somebody felt that a vital piece of information wasn't being properly conveyed. Because if Egghead hits a six, we've won. And Egghead hits a six. And I guess it's... No, we we really need to ram home that he's hit the six and they've won. So rather than getting the boy back in to do some ADR... Maybe just do some pickup shots and get all the scenery and lighting back up for this one piece of information. They just take the last two words of his sentence, snip, snip, copied onto another piece of tape and played out again. it says, "If Egghead hits a six, we've won. We've won." <laughs> Egghead's big line delivery is, I think, it's when he's in his underpants and somebody says, "You know, you're going to go out there." The, the game started. Says, I can't go out like this, can I? really milks that line full credit to Keith Jegwin it's a lively performance the music is insanely catchy and I've had it running in a loop in my head ever since we started talking about this film
0: and it's good silly fun Roy hear as Parky gets his comeuppance for having done nothing uh, to upset <laughs> anybody
1: Yeah, I, th- I think Richard Wattis gives him a telling off yes
0: so it serves him quite right in having the temerity
1: to be But it's too middle class, isn't it, for a horn-handed son of toil like yourself?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thankfully, we've got the CFF equivalent of a Ken Loach film coming up, because in Sammy's super t-shirt, there is actually the existence of a laundrette.
1: Doesn't he live in a terraced house? The only thing is is that they can afford an indoors. It's multicultural, it's multi-ethnic. They've made Sammy's best friend black, because... It's, I presume, in a city, London. It's the late 70s. It's a less purely white world. They're reflecting that. They haven't made him into a stereotype, though. He's just got his own personality as the best friend, and his whole thing is reading some knockoff version of the Guinness Book of Records and coming out with facts about who's run the farthest and who's dived the deepest and all that kind of stuff. I like
0: that. It would have been very easy to have him a stereotypical character along the lines of the Lenny Henry character on Tiz Was. No, he's not like that at all.
1: And actually, this whole thing that we're saying, that this is more working class, it just is. I don't get any sense that we're having fingers wagged at us saying, by the way, boys and girls, some children live in terraced houses and they do not have big gardens, which was an attitude I sometimes came up against as a child. When you're being told by somebody who lives in a big house with a big garden that some children live in terraced houses with small gardens. Yes, I lived in a terraced house with a small <laughs> garden. Get off my case. Again, it just is. There's a bit of bullying, but the bullying isn't really made. So we're not just seeing Sammy constantly having his head sat on and his pants
0: pulled down or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I hang on a second. Is that what goes on? In I don't know. I
1: just I started a sentence and I had to keep talking. <laughs> what would be a humiliation? This is a very spontaneous podcast. I don't write bullying notes ahead of time. <laughs> things to do. I don't want to be found with a list of humiliating things to do to small boys in my possession. Well, is a no matter top. how much <laughs> it would make this sound a slicker podcast. No, right, that's just what I came up with. They don't do too much bullying. There's a game of Keeper where and he's kind of pushed around a bit. But not the real people you can't trust... In Sammy's world, just like there is grown-ups. Richard Vernon and Julian Holloway. Why is Richard Vernon so evil?
0: I think if Richard
1: Vernon had just been slightly more generous,
0: he would have been a rich man by the end of the film. Because he is a businessman. He is a besuited, bowler hat-wearing banker. Therefore, he's a protagonist. Antagonist. I guess we'll
1: have to say, yeah, antagonist. So, <laughs> right, what happens? Sammy is interested in sport. He wants to become strong. He wants to take part in the local sporting event. There's going to be racing and, I don't know, maybe... It's, like a, it's like a 1,500 meters race. It's run by Jack May, whose credit on the IMDb is Jack May as sports Master. <laughs> Sammy has his lucky T-shirt... But some of the bullies play keep away with the t-shirt. They fling it in the air and it goes in the window of some scientific place where Julian Holloway is trying to make indestructible cloth. He's got a big container full of shirts that he's treating with magical rays using science and then setting fire to the shirts in the hope that he will eventually find a shirt that will not catch fire. Sammy and his friend Marvin run inside. So this is a place with... Top-secret scientific work being done. Not necessarily top-secret on a national level, but definitely you want to worry about industrial espionage. It's quite easy to get into, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you, all you got to do is get past Michael Ripper. You know, he is a security guard of the highest caliber, but on occasion, if you are quick enough, you can outwit him. So something happens to Sammy's
1: T-shirt. That's the next one put in the science machine a lever or something gets knocked by sammy and marvin so it gets extra supercharged with science julian holloway notices it doesn't catch fire but as he goes to report this to richard vernon his boss sammy and marvin grab the t-shirt sammy puts it on and because it has been
0: bombarded with particles sammy gets superpowers can i just check you're not just taking words directly out of new scientists are you you're throwing all these technical terms at me and I'm just, I'm not getting this at all.
1: I learnt it all from Bob Haney. Bob Haney, who once had a Superman and Batman story where Superman and Batman's sons, because he just like, I want to write a story about Superman and Batman's sons. And instead of going to the editor, well, I think the editor didn't had a bit of a hands-off, but of, uh, Superman and Batman don't have sons, it's like, the story is, this is a story about Superman and Batman's sons. You can't prove they don't have sons. <laughs> Fine. And there is one where Superman Jr. and Batman Jr. are going off to do some superheroing in a city. Superman's not sure if this is a good idea. So rather than being Superman, he could have built a duplicate city. No, what he does is he he cracks the San Andreas Fault like a whip, creating a weird parallel vibrational city that is one day ahead in time. Bob Haney Science. And I think that's what's happened to Sammy's t-shirt. It's been bombarded with Haney rays because <laughs> some of this stuff is not explained really by him. but why is he super strong why does he have strong arms just from wearing the t-shirt well I think there might be a little explanation that comes up later but so you need to know Sammy now has superpowers, so Sammy is now as fast and as strong as he wanted to be in fact more so and that means he's perfectly entitled to destroy property as he sees fit because he's the hero so when he's wanting to show how strong he is to his friend he just goes and pulls a flagpole out of the ground and tosses it like a caber whose flagpole is it who cares if you could do that you would wouldn't you i know richard vernon is the bad guy and he really is the bad guy he's not like roy canair he, he does bad things he tries to have sammy kidnapped if all he'd done is just given sammy a couple of hundred quid he could have taken the t-shirt the t-shirt's valuable because it appears that julian holloway has succeeded in making his indestructible cloth if he just got his checkbook out things would have worked out much better for everybody Except maybe for Sammy, who would have lost his superpowers. But anyway, so no, Richard Vernon is nearly killed because this flagpole goes straight through the car. Sammy's not to know, it's not like they're after him and Sammy picks up the flagpole and flings it at him in fear. No, he's just demonstrating his own strength, flings it up in the air. He doesn't know where it comes down, it just happens to come down. It could have plunged straight through Richard Vernon's chest. Or anybody. Roy Kinnear might have been going to a different park for a bit of relaxation because of all the ungrateful kids. And a flagpole could have come
0: looming out of the sky at him and just gone straight through him. Sure that's gonna be like a busman's holiday though. I mean, if he wants to go and relax, he's not gonna to go to another park, is he? He's curious to see about how other
1: people do it. Maybe he was going to exchange hints and pro tips with the other parkies.
0: Would or is this us... some sort of park keeping you... conference?
1: I imagine that when he, you know, late at night he rings up those park keeper chat lines. <laughs> <laughs> there is some sort of hand wavy line about it absorbs energy and multiplies it. Which I think is supposed to explain Sammy's superpowers.
0: Look, even if it's a possibility that you're going to plunge a huge big steel post through several bystanders be they businessmen or park keepers, then I maintain that if you could, you would. If you knew you could just go out and grab hold of a set of traffic lights and just fling them around in the air and then up and just see wherever the hell it lands of course you would! You wouldn't give a Buck what the fallout was going to be. You just do it because she could, and you so want So we're back show to
1: um, we're back to CFF movies being the most punk movies imaginable. Never mind Derek Jarman's Jubilee. You want to destroy passers by? Let me tell you who does destroy passers by: Sammy in a super t shirt. Now, it is simple wish fulfillment, and as a result, it's very simple wish fulfillment, and they don't really examine the full consequences. I think they could have just done a little bit more, just to make it appear slightly less horribly selfish
0: okay it's not right to start pointing out faults with the plot because that's given these films uh a level no of you know what this is the really kind of thing fear. that i think
1: no i think this would have actually bothered me as a child it's something every time we look at children's television and films from this period probably something we're going to keep coming up against is this stuff being made by adults who don't really remember what it's like to be a child or being a child has changed so much that it's different, and I can imagine there's possibly a certain amount of, well, we don't bother about that, the children won't care or notice. And I think it would have bothered me as a child, and I can't think I would have been the only one who thought, well, that's a bit irresponsible of Sam. He might not use the word irresponsible, but that ain't right. Why are you flinging flagpoles around? Why can't they give him a reason to fling a flagpole around? So here's what happens. He's trying to demonstrate his super strength to Marvin, and a flagpole is about to fall down and hit Marvin. And Sammy grabs it and puts it back straight, demonstrating more power than Sammy should have. And there his powers are demonstrated, saving his friend. Not just saying, oh, you want to believe I'm superpowered?" Snap! Here's some property. Oh, well, she should have left it in public.
0: How about this for a plot issue? So Julian Holloway hasn't seen what actually caused the t-shirt to develop its superpowers because he wasn't in the room at the time. But he thinks that he was. So when he brings in Richard Vernon and says, look, see, see, it won't catch fire. And then they end up with the t-shirt being stolen. Why doesn't he just repeat what he thought was the process by which that happened?
1: Or has he just been firing at random? I'll work out afterwards. I'll take the t-shirt apart. Well, that's the kind of plot issue that I don't think I would have noticed as a child. Not that you're not right to bring it up. I, th- I think we know where this is going. The sporting event is going to happen, and Sammy's going to do amazing things. But what I do like is, having said that, that's, you know, cheating is fine, cheating is fair. Sammy does not win because of the t shirt. On the one hand, yeah, th- he finds out that the magic was inside him all the time. Bit of an American kind of thing. No, I, actually, that fair is fair. After all the dreadful willful destruction of property and nearly killing somebody sammy does win fair and square and the t-shirt explodes
0: he doesn't win fair and square though how
1: do you mean well if you look how far behind he is they find out that this t-shirt's molecules are unstable so the t-shirt is going to explode and it gives him too much strength and it gives him not enough And then he starts going backwards and then at one point he stands still so he goes from being a lap behind to winning the race And he does that not wearing the T-shirt. So the T-shirt puts him at a disadvantage, which he then overcomes. So I'm saying that he's actually quite frighteningly fast.
0: It's like, though, if you had a situation where, say, the winner of a 100-meter race, it was discovered afterwards that he'd taken a banned substance. And he was able to prove that the banned substance actually only assisted him for the first tenth of the race... So he's saying, look, a good 90% of that was down to my own efforts, no, it, I'll have it, you But it,
1: it sent him backwards and made him stand still. If he actually proved, look, actually, I think you'll find that stuff slowed me down. That's the
0: thing. It, well, even so, they'd still disqualify him from the race. If you take that logic to So conclusion. what's going
1: to happen... Right, one of the bullies, who is also in the race and tries to knock him over is going to say, I think you'll find
0: that the molecules of his t-shirt had been changed, <laughs> and that's why he could run so fast... So are you saying then that if... I will not name names because it would be libelous. So if Runner A goes into the next European Championships and he takes a banned substance and actually it has a negative effect and yet he still wins, by this logic then he should actually get two gold medals. Rather than just being thrown out of the competition altogether. Because that's what would happen. They wouldn't say, good on you. Uh, you No, they wouldn't. But I I think it's...
1: The guys who wrote this did not write a story about Sammy winning through cheating. They wrote a story about Sammy overcoming an obstacle to win the race. And as Marvin says, it was really his own power. The only other thing I want to mention is that Marvin carries around a black felt tip at all times. This comes in handy at one point. As I said, scientifically, Sammy's superpowers don't make sense. But then, Vernon and Holloway manage to get hold of the t-shirt because Sammy has discarded it. It was doing him harm. The t-shirt explodes, and we see Julian Holloway holding the last ragged part of this t-shirt. And it's the tiger's face, and the tiger's facial expression has changed. And we see... I don't see its eyes glowing red. And he goes, ha 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 ha! Was it magic? Was science nothing to do with it? Was this some strange kind of magic that had given Sammy those powers that would not be adequately explained by molecular changes to
0: fabric? Well, the thing is, okay, it was science to begin with, but Vernon and Holloway had a choice. They could either have used the science for good, or they could have used it for evil. And they chose evil, as in profit. So, therefore, the science turned into magic. This is very interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that would happen. <laughs> well, compared to the last two,
1: our third film is completely down to earth, isn't it?
0: Uh, it is, if it wasn't for the fact that we've actually unwittingly spiced it up somewhat in the course of a couple of viewings. <laughs> do but you want we'll come to get to that. that
1: out of the way right at the beginning? or uh, No, no, we'll, we'll,
0: we'll, we'll save it. We'll, we'll 1984
1: Pop Pirates, the only one that I actually remember watching on Children's BBC. And even then I don't think I watched it to the end. Dreadful little boy I was really. Terribly judgmental and snotty. And this again we're running counter to the middle class image. Working class boys in a reggae band trying to win a battle of the bands competition. No magic. We all know from the outset they're going to win the competition. They win the competition by being a tight unit who plays very well. There's no magical bass guitar. There is no change in the molecules of the bass drum skin. There is another thing I remember being the stereotype of the Children's Film Foundation film, which is children witness a crime and nobody believes them. Now, this isn't quite what's happening in this one, but this is the crime-based Children's Film Foundation film. But it's different, again, because one of the children is actually implicated in the crime. And as the title implies, it's pop piracy. Copying of music videos for selling in market stalls, which is being done by George Sweeney, uncle of Paul, who is the lead singer of the band Pirates. And Paul's nickname in the band is Wine Gum.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so the first time we saw, we watched all of these films twice for our research purposes. The first time we saw Paul Pirates, there is a scene early on in the film where Paul is practicing, because he's still in the band at this point, and here comes Uncle Stuart, and he's shouting in Paul's ear, And it really did legitimately sound like he'd said to Paul, Oi! Wanker! Now, we debated this, and I think you said, "Ocho," at one point, I don't think that line would have gone out on CBBC. And I was actually (laughs) arguing that it would have done, because Stuart is clearly the heel of the piece. He is the antagonist. So, I thought, it's, it's, it's mild, it's mild swearing, and I thought... They'd probably get away with it because he is somebody who you're not supposed to emulate at all, his behaviour. On the second viewing, we actually heard it three times. Not just from Stuart, but we also heard it from Paul's mates in the band as well. And I'm suddenly starting to think, was there some sort of period around about 1984 when suddenly the word wanker wasn't considered a really terrible swear word? I mean, was it in some I was sort thinking of maybe there was period? a
1: British Swearing Council... Among other things, it was felt that the destructive influence of American television and film, it was eroding fine old Anglo-Saxon curses.
0: So by this point, we've seen the film twice, and now it's just become an accepted fact. Any discussion (laughs) about George Sweeney at any point will automatically trigger the response, WANGA! And we debated having this as a ringtone, for example, and we had T-shirts made up. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, you decided to give the film a third viewing, which is more than anybody surely has watched Pop Pirates at any point, even during the duplication process. And you made a horrific discovery, did you not? The first time we thought we heard it in
1: the film, the drummer is shouting across to Paul. He's irritated at Paul because Paul's not helping him with the drums. So that made sense. And he goes, Oi, Wang I thought that sounded like wine gum. That's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna to have to confess now I haven't really kept track of which child is which in the band. Then one of the other band members who isn't Paul says, So what do you what do you about it, wine gum? His nickname's Wine Gum. He did shout wine gum. And then I went forward to George Sweeney, and so Paul's there practicing his guitar and he's not paying attention, as Stuart's going, Paul! Paul and he pulls out the plug on the guitar so there's silence and he goes, Oi, wine gum. <laughs> so I didn't even bother checking the third instance because, like, yeah, he shouts wine gum because that's why it's only Paul who's having it
0: shouted at him in this. I have to admit that this is very, very disappointing. I wasn't taken aback. If this had been, say, Egghead, we're talking about, then it would have just been, Oh, you've misheard. It's just nonsense. This. Clearly, this did not happen. But 1984, it's supposed to be a more gritty affair all round, and Stuart is a baddie, an out-and-out bad guy. There's no getting away from it. So it's just possible that he could have come out with this. And it's the kind of thing that then Tommy Boyd would have had to apologise for afterwards.
1: Why would CITV be (laughs) apologising? By the way, if you've just tuned in to CITV, because... You were appalled at what you heard on CBBC. <laughs> we don't blame you. We can only uh, pass on our sympathies. What is interesting is what a different kind of film this is. I don't think they're really thinking about the matinees anymore.
0: Well, there is something missing here. The opening in Trafalgar Square before the pigeons. It's not here.
1: Well, that might just been the copy we watched. And by that point, it might have been the children's film and television foundation which is what it became and i think i have seen a pigeon opening where it comes on cftf as a logo so they're possibly yeah they're thinking differently now which is why it's less about simple wish fulfillment yeah being in a band with your mates there's a little bit of fantasy which is being a great musician and impressing people but that's possibly why it's no longer for making a bunch of yelping crackerjack scouts chuckle and scream on a saturday morning I quite like the rhythm of that sentence, but please don't try and think about it, because I don't think it makes (laughs) sense.
0: So, just how serious was the issue of pop piracy in 1984? There was a scourge of people recording the Radio 1 Top 40, of course, which we all know about.
1: Yeah, it's a strangely phony baloney thing. It's almost like they want to make a film about drug smuggling, but it's like, even if we're no longer playing for the matinee crowd, come on. We can only go so far. But as I understand it, th- what's recognised as being the last proper Children's Film Foundation film called Terry on the Fence, and I believe that that really does push the gritty envelope.
0: You mean he actually does say wanker in that?
1: The description I'm looking at here on screen online. Terry on the Fence tries to suggest sympathy for the villain, a snotty youth from London's rundown Docklands who's been scarred both physically and mentally by his abusive mother. So now the Children's Film Foundation films are... Looking to add a dose of reality. It's not about wholesome British entertainment. It's like right, what is not being provided? Of course, you can argue that actually it was, it was, it was being provided by television. There's lots of quite hard-nosed stuff being made for children. Even something like 1975, The Changes, which has a fantasy base as to why the events suddenly happen, is quite stark in its own way. It's not distressing. It's not unsuitable for children. I, I watched a drama rama recently and my wife caught a bit of it and she went what is this and i said oh it's a children's program and she went this is a children's program all they were doing was kind of very mr james-ish pursued by ghosts in the stark english countryside but my wife thought this isn't really entirely suitable for children so the ethos has changed and pop pirates for all that we laugh at it and for all that there's a slightly stilted element to the way the children talk to each other during the rehearsals though even then that's probably realistic every kid talks like he's the leader of the band at some point and the keyboard player says something i can't remember what he's like but he says it with real venom fucking g it's not a d it's a fucking g i suppose really the unrealistic thing is these children say spiteful things during rehearsals to each other whereas in my experience no, everybody says it to the drummer okay do you've been in a band
0: Yes, I was the drummer. (laughs) I want want to ask you a question with regard to artistic direction. As an outsider, I've never been in a band myself, I've never had any musical ability, I get the impression that the Pirates are just a little bit too good. Is that fair? Is that a fair criticism? No. No, it's not. Really?
1: It It depends how young they started. Yeah, of course they sound slick. This almost feels like a pilot for a musical youth TV show. Did musical youth have their own TV show? I have a feeling they might have. But this feels like somebody's written a drama to be based around musical youth. So no, it's not inconceivable that if they'd been playing long enough. But they do have a lot of rehearsal time, as we see. We haven't really mentioned the plot, because there is a bit of peril in the plot. One of them gets kidnapped by Uncle Stewart because he spotted Uncle Stewart's piracy operation. Uh, Uncle Stewart what is it, a video copying plant or something?
0: Yeah, it was on boat, isn't it? With a little. No, but power where, he, where he works. Oh, I see. Yes, yeah, where he, Christopher. I think Beanie. he works
1: at a video copying place. Yes, for for Christopher Beanie, and he just occasionally nicks some of the masters, takes them off to his little houseboat, and makes copies and sells them to some dodgy geezers who then sell them down the market. It's small scale crime, but it is theft. Because now we have BitTorrent, <laughs> PopTorrents, the twenty fifteen CFF. <laughs> hard-nosed thriller. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. <laughs>
0: but it is a direct line, isn't it?
1: No. Here's the one thing that, that stretches credulity.
0: Where did they get the sign? Yes, it's a very, very professional, well-made is it a neon sign? I think it's made of light bulbs. Does it belong to the
1: theatre that they play in? Because we never see them, t- we see them take their instruments home, they don't take
0: the sign with them. <laughs> in which case, surely it's not much of a surprise that they win. <laughs> So you're saying that if there was a band that was on the X Factor and they were called Shits and Giggles, for example, and the whole time, for all 12 weeks, behind old O'Leary is a huge neon sign that reads Shits and Giggles, it wouldn't be a massive surprise when he says, still building up the tension at the end of the 12 weeks, <laughs> and the winner is, and then all the lights go down and the drum beats going, the winner is, Shits and Giggles, yay! And it turns out that it's not Fuckwits United who were in competition with them, and they did have a sign, they just didn't have it on display. They didn't need to be so ostentatious. Well, as much
1: as we've had a laugh, I really enjoyed what we watched. I have watched more Children's Film (laughs) Foundation films than you, sorry, than (laughs) the ones I talked about here. I've got a few of the DVDs, I've got a couple of the Network DVDs, which are now to print. I've got a couple of the BFI ones, including The Boy Who Turned Yellow, which is the last Powell and Pressburger film. And I know some people would We'll be gutted that we didn't talk about that one. But it's a rich topic we can come back to. Well, some people want us to have done a a Hitch in Time, which has Patrick Troughton as an eccentric time traveller.
0: The obvious one that we've missed out, apart from the one with Ronnie Barker, which I think... Is that the one with Jimmy Edwards and Graham Stark as the ghost in the house? The obvious one that we've missed out, and we'll definitely do this at some point in the future because we have watched it, is, of course, Mr. Horatio Nibbles. There's just too many to choose from.
1: Well, next time, maybe we should do... One from each decade, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, to see if any patterns form in the way they address their audience. We notice a little bit of it and how significantly different 1984 was from 1970. So from 1951 to 1987, that's a lot of social development to take
0: in. The Beatles had come and gone.
1: ITV has come and ITV has changed a couple of times. And what will we be talking about next time on Jaffa Cakes for Proust?
0: Next month, we are talking about 1968. We are not talking about student protests or Paris or anything like that. We are talking about the ITV shakeup of 68, which saw the arrival of companies such as Yorkshire Television, Thames Television and London Weekend Television.
1: And the loss of Rediffusion and TWW.
0: And it wasn't a straightforward administrative procedure because there were quite a few twists and turns particularly in that first year. We shall be exploring those. So, from yourself, Ocho. Goodbye. And from myself, Mooncat. Cheerios. And this has been Chaffa Cakes for Proust.